uh, this awesome portion of God's word. And I hope it's been helpful to you, honestly. I hope that you've been challenged, that your thinking has been reoriented, has been shifted, uh, as it has certainly shifted mine, that truly, you know, the law of God, the word of God never grows old. It never returns void. It is always helpful and beneficial to our souls. And so uh, let's all the more uh, seek to obey out of love, not out of a begrudging spirit. All right. Uh, if you haven't already, we're in Matthew chapter five and we're wrapping up the last six verses. The last six verses. I'm so proud of you guys. The title of this sermon is Your Brother, Your Enemy, and Your Love. Your Brother, Your Enemy, and Your Love. Uh, Let's read God's Word together. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. We'll read to the end of the chapter. You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sons rise and on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That is the very words of our living God. Repetition is the mother of all learning. Repetition is the mother of all of all learning. Repetition is the mother of all learning. Uh, We have finally reached the end of chapter five, and I hope you have grasped onto this concept. Repetition is the mother of learning, of all learning, even if you have forgot everything else that has been said, that has been taught thus far. Uh, Your Bibles, our Bibles, the ones that you hold in your hand, the ones that saints of old have held in their hands. Uh, the Bible is a, uh, a closed, closed canon, a closed book, meaning there are no more scripture that is to date uh, being written, nothing more inspired than what we have before us. And contrary to some you know, popular charismatic and prosperity preachers of this day, and what they believe, we now hold the complete Sufficient word of God that is sufficient for a life of godliness. Uh, That also means that since the canon has closed, since this is a closed book, the truth of God does not change. Uh, There's nothing that God has not said that he hasn't said already. Uh, Meaning it is very good. It's very beneficial for Christians, young and old, to rewalk, to retread the same paths of truth that they have before. Repetition is truly the mother of all learning. 
Uh, it's a common phrase, I think, that even though it's cliche, you've heard it me say it five times already, uh, we can never outgrow or move past. We can never outgrow, to be more specific, the truths of the gospel. And I think what we have studied and examined in this first chapter, chapter 5 of Jesus' magnum opus of a sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, certainly speaks to uh, this cliche as well. And so for for the sixth time, the sixth time, I've only said that phrase five times, For the sixth time, we read uh, Jesus' recurring phrase as he seeks to readdress, reorient, or re-catechize, meaning to reteach in a systematic way, uh, which is actually a a counter-catechism, meaning he's trying to undo previous teaching. Our uh, preconceived notions and perceptions concerning what God's law is truly teaching us. We studied commonly misunderstood laws concerning anger and lust and divorce and uh, is your word good? Is, uh, are you a vengeful person? We have now reached the zenith of this teaching of sorts. Um, I hope you've noticed the progression here uh, that Jesus is moving us through from laws that concern our personal sins, matters of the heart that only you yourselves and God know about, uh, to interactions with neighbors that still, again, stem primarily from the heart. Uh, We've moved from more of an inward look to a more outward, more evidential form and forms of misunderstanding. As we examined last week, these last two Sections, one about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, your revenge or retaliation, and uh, what we're going to learn and examine tonight. Um, these last two deal with a different kind of relationship that we might have. Uh, it is when our brother doesn't seem very brotherly. And I know for all you guys who have siblings, brothers or sisters, um, there are times when they are the least brotherly or sisterly of people in your lives. However, for Jesus, he sees no difference between uh, the relationships we have with our best friends and the relationships we have with uh, those we might not be most drawn to at first. But rather, he pushes the envelope a step further Because for him, the concept of loving your brother is easy. The topic we will be examining tonight and next week, preview, uh, when Zachary brings you the word, is the topic and the issue of love. Because where your love is, it will dictate the rest of your life. If you choose the path of least resistance or the path of easy love, then the aroma and the evidence of Christ will be hard to find in your life. However, uh, the true growing and budding Christian life is marked by love that is accentuated even to the furthest reaches of our relational spheres. Meaning, in other words, Jesus explains it, that we are to love our enemies. Uh, The Christian life, I hope you've 
start to put together in your young Christian walks. The Christian life is never meant to be easy. Uh, rather, being a Christian is hard. Jesus tells us to count the cost. I hope you've counted the cost because it is at this very issue. It's because love, true love is so hard. Uh, perversion of the law, perversion of this law and all of the previous perversions we've seen uh, makes law seem easy, makes them doable. I can love my neighbor and hate my enemy, easy. I, can do, I do that every day, whether I want to or not. However, holiness, a true pursuit of Christ and Christ-like qualities and attributes, that, it requires a concentrated effort. Not out of a strength of self, per se, but rather an understanding in the subsequent strength that God provides through his spirit. So after examining all these perversions, we've come across this last one. And I hope it has become obvious to you that this perversion, this warping, this twisting of God's holy scripture, like all previous five, um, is so easy. It's so easy to append, to attach, to add on extra biblical requirements to a biblical mandate from Scripture because it customizes, it tailors one's fleshly tendencies to that law while guarding our flesh from sin, supposedly. But any addition and any subtraction, for that matter, of God's law is perversion and it is sin, Nonetheless, and so we've reached to the we've reached the, the climax, the, the zenith of six illustrations, six clarifications, six catechisms, and I hope from just this one law, verse forty three, and this misinterpretation, this perversion, you can sense the weight, the gravitas behind Jesus's teaching. What is the greatest commandment? What is the premier commandment that governs and rules over all other commandments? Audience participation. Love God. That's right. You shall love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second one is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And also hate your enemy. I can hope you can automatically sense something is very wrong with that statement. You would immediately wonder, wait, wouldn't my enemy also be my neighbor? And so sometimes my neighbor can also be my enemy. And so how does that work here? And you'd be right into thinking that. Uh, because that is the very perversion the Pharisees and the scribes sought to attach, sought to append onto this precious second greatest commandment of all time. Love for God and love for neighbor. The second goat, the mini goat of laws. Um, love for God and love for neighbor rules and governs the entire Christian life. If you had not love, you'd be What? A noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. You'd be useless. You'd be a nuisance. You'd be tossed out. 
Therefore, it is obvious that Jesus would conclude this section of reframing, of reteaching the law of God with such an important clarification. The corruption is so great, so heinous because of the preciousness and the greatness of the law that has been corrupted. See, it's a scale of magnitude here. Therefore, uh, let us follow along with Jesus and reorient our love so that we would love our neighbor, even if and when our neighbor is our enemy. Similarly to the structure and outline that we've saw before, because it's formulaic, Jesus is using repetition to teach us here. Our outline for tonight will be similar. Uh, First, we'll see a clarification of the law. Go figure. In verses 43 and 44, then we'll see a better expression of love, a better expression of love in verses 44 and 45. There's some overlap here. And then lastly, uh, we'll examine and strive after a greater likeness pursued, a greater likeness pursued in verses 46 through 48. So let's look at verse 43, a clarification of the law. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You have heard that it was said. After examining this phrase on five different occasions already, I want to draw your attention to one final implication. I think you've gotten the picture here if you've been here for the past month. We're gonna look at just one final implication that Christ raises by stating this phrase. You have heard that it was said over and over and over again. That is... Do not believe everything you hear. Do not believe everything you hear. Never once did Jesus say, does Jesus say, it was written, or you have read. Uh, But rather, everything he sought to clarify was a perversion taught from the mouths of men. Uh, So therefore, the concept of being a discerning Berean is in play here. As the Jews of Berea examined the words of Paul and compared them with the already uh, written words of Scripture, we find immediate application, I hope, in the words of our leaders and pastors. Me. Don't believe everything I say, but rather examine what I say according to what God has said. Uh, Discern and examine the sermons that you've heard and heard the advice and the counsel that you're given by your leaders and your peers and see if they align with Scripture because if they do not align, if what I'm saying is contradictory to what he is saying, don't listen to me. Don't listen to that person. You have no reason to obey them. Authority from man will always be a borrowed authority. President Trump Biden guy, whoever he is sitting in the White House, Borrowed authority. Pastor Glenn, borrowed authority. Your mom and your dad, honor your father and mother, still borrowed authority because all of it is from God. And so examine the words of men with actual authoritative words of scripture. If they are true, then compel yourself to submit and come under those words as Hebrews 13 verse seven prescribes. Submit to your leaders. Jesus moves to state the Second greatest commandment. And immediately one would wonder if they're listening. Yes, absolutely. I've heard this commandment before. Uh, 
Not only that, it'd be so ingrained in their minds that how can there be something wrong here? You shall love your neighbor. And uh, this should cause our ears to perk up. Whenever you hear the truth of God's word and then you hear a coordinating conjunction, something like and, or, but, yet, uh, this should cause you to zero in what is being said next. Uh, because what follows is the text test of orthodoxy. It's the test of whether the preacher, the speaker, the person you're talking to is speaking authoritatively or speaking truly or not. Jesus is quoting the religious teacher's words at the time. And they're teaching and it moves to demonstrate to us and alarm us and showing us how to pick up on false teaching. Here we have Pure truth, one of the greatest commandments of Scripture, appended, added on, attached to something that is by nature diametrically false or diametrically opposed to it. It's as if this commandment were to say, do A and also do not A at the same time. How does that work? That should immediately raise concern and question within you and ask, okay, which one is it? Is it A or is it not A? Is it love your neighbor or is it hate your enemy? Because you cannot do one thing and then do the exact opposite thing that contradicts it. At the same time, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy? The first question we must naturally ask and people have asked, even Jesus in the past is, Who is my neighbor? A Pharisee asked Jesus this very question because he wanted to prove to Jesus his righteousness, how godly he was, his his deep and wide understanding of the law. And as you remember, the Pharisee rightly deduced that basic and fundamental understanding of God's law that we've already gone over, the first and second greatest commandments, love God and love neighbor. And he wasn't satisfied. And so he sought to prove himself, to prove his self-righteousness even further. And he asked Jesus to show how godly and pious he was. Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers with one of, if not the most famous parables of all time. Uh, One that is so misunderstood and taken out of context today. Uh, The parable of the good Samaritan. And as you remember in that parable of said good Samaritan, Uh, Jesus sought to teach and to demonstrate love for neighbors, love for everyone, enemies included. Uh, As a Jew was mobbed by robbers and left for dead on the side of the highway, uh, the Jew's kinsmen or his people, a priest and a Levite, the leaders of the Jewish religious system, leaders of faith and practice of the time, ignored them. And they made up these lame excuses for not being able to help the man. It was that Samaritan, uh, the presumed most hated enemy of the Jew because of their ethnic background. Uh, The Jews were racist. And uh, because the Samaritans were descendants of Jews who married into surrounding pagan nations. And it was this man, this enemy, an assumed enemy of the Jews who demonstrated love for his neighbor. Therefore, I think here, Jesus' point should be clear. 
It is the demonstration of love to those who are least like us, the last people we would prefer to love, those who are hardest to love, our enemies that demonstrate to us who our neighbors should be. However, today that parable has been hijacked by social media influencers and social justice warriors, and they pressure the church into becoming some kind of social justice, socioeconomic activist group. Jesus' point here, however, is clear as he answered that self-righteous Pharisee's question, who is my neighbor? Uh, Those who are least like you, those who you like the least, those people are your neighbors. And so to hear something taught such as, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy is completely counterintuitive to the nature of love itself. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All of that, all of 1 Corinthians 13, all of what you read from Scripture concerning love applies to all people, including our enemies. Therefore, you cannot, in word or in deed, love your neighbor if you hate your enemy. Like oil and water, these two things do not mix. They will always stand apart from each other. They will always separate from each other. These two things are diametrically opposed to one another. And so Jesus offers a better expression of love. Love your enemies. Love your enemies because they are your neighbor. Love your enemies and pray for them. It is difficult to hate someone when you earnestly bring them before the Lord in prayer. This brings us to our second point. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. Uh, Jesus provides us a better expression of love. Love and prayer go hand in hand. Oftentimes, the greatest expressions of our love is an intercessory expression. Prayer, as we have been examining Sunday mornings, is that multifaceted, multidimensional expression of communion with the living and triune God. Jesus gives us the general statement to love our enemies. Uh, Notice there's no fluff, nothing additional, just a plain and simple, straightforward command, meaning When we love our enemies, we are to show care, show affection out of sacrifice for the good of that person. Loving our enemies is thereby active. It actively seeks out the needs of the other person. It is also responsive. Like the good Samaritan, it responds to the needs of others. It is decisive. It does not waver. It does not vacillate. It is faithful and true. It describes the character of Jesus. Jesus truly is our main example of love. All love stems from him because he is what? Love incarnate. No truer love is this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. 
Jesus was the friend of sinners. Jesus had compassion on those the world deemed were the least deserving of compassion. He befriended men like Matthew and Zacchaeus, men who were tax collectors, despised by their kinsmen, the Jews, and replaceable by their employers, Rome. Jesus served people when no one wanted to serve them, like lepers, demoniacs, the blind, the lame, the hurting, all of the refuse of the world. Jesus accepted them without any hesitation or any hostility. Any, Therefore, when Jesus commands us to love our enemies, you can take him at his word here that he means what he says he means. There's no, are you sure, Jesus? There's none of that. There's no ifs, ands, or buts, coconuts, when it comes to this command, to love our enemies. Paul says in Romans 12, 20, that when you love your enemy, uh, when you feed them, when you dress them, when you care for them, it is as if you are heaping hot coals on their head. Well, that doesn't seem loving. What does that mean? (laughs) It means that your enemy, the person that you're seeking to love, will feel the living contradiction, the seeming paradox that is Christian love. Your enemies, the world, those whom dislike you will feel Christianity at its finest, Christianity at its best. It'll draw most attention to the Savior because it's here, is here when you love your enemies, here is where Christianity is the most countercultural. Loving your enemies, serving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, um, who hound you, who chase you down because who you are and who you follow is the most indicative of this otherworldliness that abides in you, known as your union with Christ, the indwellings uh, of the Holy Spirit, the faith you possess, the gospel you believe. When you love your enemies, all of those things are most on display. Do you understand? Furthermore, when you pray for your enemies, when you actively seek the Lord, petition the Lord to do good on behalf of your enemies, whether it be their salvation, their most basic and pressing need, or whether it be their overall well-being, whatever it is, do you not see you are drawing ever, you are drawing them ever more closer to Christ in your prayers, through your prayers? I firmly believe that Jesus mentions prayer here uh, to draw us and help us grasp onto the uh, efficacious nature of prayer, meaning prayer works. God responds to the prayers of man as he worked his will with the prayers of man already in account. Therefore, when we pray for our enemies, it helps us draw them nearer, ever closer to God, ever more closer to their salvation. Prayer works as even our prayers for our enemies can be used by God. What a profound and mysterious truth we are called to, but we're called to nonetheless. And to what end is all of this for? This better expression of love. Jesus says it is to prove, it is to prove our Adoption. 
is to demonstrate and give us the personal assurance that we are truly sons and daughters of God. We have been truly adopted into his family and become co-heirs of his kingdom with his son, Christ Jesus. Notice the use of the term may, so that you may be sons of your father. Jesus is not giving us the option of becoming sons of God if we love our enemies. But rather, he is indicating the inward reality that is on display when we love our enemies. When we love our enemies, we are demonstrating grace. We're demonstrating grace that came from our adoption. Grace, then, is commonly misunderstood. uh, Or, sorry, commonly understood. Scratch that. Commonly understood as getting something you don't deserve. Thank you, Zachary. That's why he's preaching next week. (laughs) Meaning the most common understanding of this is when Christ went to the cross and died for the sins of those whom his father has given to him, that is grace. That is something that undeserving sinners did not deserve because you and I, the undeserving sinners, are helplessly bound for hell. That is our trajectory and nothing is changing that. And we, we don't care. But when the grace of God appeared, salvation was accomplished on the cross. But to dial that back even more, grace is anything that undeserving, hell-bound sinners like you and me don't deserve each and every day. The air we breathe, grace. The food we eat, grace. The water we drink, grace. The clothes we wear, grace. The homes we live in, grace. The beds we sleep on, grace. The schools we attend, grace. The jobs we work, grace. The friends we have and share, grace. Grace, grace. Everything we experience on this planet right now at this moment is grace. Therefore, when Jesus indicates that when we love our enemies, the people who seemingly least deserve our love, that is an indication of sonship. That is an indication that we share the same grace with them, with our enemies that we have daily, already, and into the future experience. Common grace. That is the theologically technical term used to describe all these things that we have here for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust common grace jesus describes this common grace as that shared universal experience of grace that we all people man creatures created by god christians and non-christians we all Share. We all experience, what does he say here? The warmth of the sun. We all reap the benefits of rain upon the land. We all live and breathe the same air and live in the same universe God has created for his glory. And even though both Christians and non-Christians are 100%, without a shadow of a doubt, deserving of hell, deserving of eternal damnation for this time, at this time, because of the steadfast, enduring grace of God, we do not. We do not experience hell. We do not experience the, the torment of a life without the grace of God and the mercy of God because of a common grace 
we all share. That God, not wanting a single soul to perish, is patiently enduring for the fullness of all believers who would come to faith. And therefore, when you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you exemplify this very grace that God shows to all of us. That is how, then, special grace Unique grace, the counterpart of common grace, becomes apparent to an antagonistic world. That is when the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, begin to make sense. The exposure to all forms of grace, both common and special, warms the dead soul and stirs the dead heart to life. You see that? You and I play then a distinct role in showing this grace and calling sinners to repentance. Therefore, love those who are the most difficult to love because you don't know if you would be at that moment in your demonstration of love, the instrument God will use for their salvation. Verses 46 and 48 concludes this final section. A greater likeness pursued. And Jesus uses four rhetorical questions. They are rhetorical because for the kingdom citizen, the, the person who is marked by the kingdom of God, for that person, for the Christian, the answer is obvious. If you only love those who love you back, if you only love those who are easy to love, if you only love your friends and never bother to meet the new person, to love the awkward person, to reach out to the hurting person, the socially awkward person, the person who's also wronged you, if you play it safe with your love, you are no better than tax collectors and Gentiles. You are no better than the person who does not know God. You are no better than the tax collectors on all the other cliques and groups that only care for their own. Sidebar. But she hung. Aren't we called to love one another and all these one another's in Scripture? And aren't we supposed to focus within the body of Christ? Da 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 da. And all these one another's. Yes. Yes and yes. Uh, Christians are called to love one another. That is true. Uh, but these one another commands must overflow. It must translate into a love for those who are outside of the camp. God distinctly, for example, chose Israel uh, to be a test case for this. When Gentiles were chosen to inherit the promises and the blessings of salvation in Christ, enemies who were once off, far off, were now counted to be in amongst the in crowd. Those who are outside, those who are ostracized can now draw near. This is the testimony and the experience of every Christian. God, through Jesus, pursued his enemies and won his enemies to himself. This is the great news of the gospel that rebel sinners, enemies of God, can now be reconciled to God and no longer be enemies, but now are called sons and daughters. 
Jesus concludes this section, concludes these rhetorical questions, concludes this entire chapter on relationships and the law, clarifying these commonly misunderstood, twisted scriptures with a summary statement that we would do very well to meditate and ponder upon. We are called, as the test-cased Israel were once called, to be holy, as our Heavenly Father is holy. Uh, You therefore must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. What a concluding statement. This wraps up the entire section. That when we obey Jesus' commands, a greater God-likeness, a greater Christ-likeness is pursued. Perfect love forms perfect character. I don't want you to misunderstand that perfection can be attained in this life, but rather Jesus explained to us that this pursuit of perfection in proportion to who we are in Christ now, in proportion rather than in degree, we are not called to be a perfect one-to-one ratio of, of God because if that were true, we are God and that will never happen. But rather, we are called to be perfect in proportion to who we are as redeemed people in Christ. Uh, Pastor Glenn has said it, I don't even know how many times now, at the conclusion of Sunday morning. God's holy people must become what they already are. Cheesy, I know, don't worry. Uh, But it's true. It's true. We pursue this greater Christ-likeness, we pursue this perfection. Paul says he presses on towards greater Christ-likeness so that he may be found complete or perfect in Christ. Therefore, this completeness, this maturity, this perfection is attainable in proportion, in proportion, in comparison to who we were in the past. Examine your life to see if you are growing in Christ-likeness, if you are better at obeying Christ and his commands, what we have studied thus far, that you are stronger in your understand, if in your understanding and your withstanding, excuse me, of the temptations of the devil in your flesh. These are all markers of one who is progressing along the path of maturity. Whoa. The root of this progression is founded then, grounded then in love. Love first expressed for God because he first loved us. Then overflowing to our neighbors in which our enemies are also included. Do you love God? Do you have an affection for him? This must come first, always comes first. Everything a Christian does and is is from this fountain of love and affection for God. If you do not love God, then you are not his child. Plain and simple. You can only love God when you are gripped and moved by his gospel. That he loved first and sent his son to die first for sin. So that if you repent of your sins, meaning not just once, but every single day of your life and you devote your life to God, if you count the cost and follow after Christ, 
then you will be saved. Then you will not only be declared justified at the moment of your conversion, at the moment of your salvation, but every single day afterwards is being saved, being sanctified. And finally, finally, when you reach that glassy shore, when you reach that, that, that over the horizon, when you see Christ face to face, you will be saved, made perfect, made complete in your glorification. All this comes from loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength first. Then you are able to truly love your neighbor and love your enemy. Reorient in your love. Examine your love to see if you truly love all of your neighbors as God loves all of your neighbors. Let us pray. God, we pray not only because we recognize there is a deficiency in our love, that our love isn't as perfect as we would like it to be, but we pray because we know that because we have Christ, there is evidence of it. And so, God, I pray for every one of us here uh, that the evidence of your love, our love for you and our love for neighbor can be more and more true, more and more apparent to us every single day of our lives as we walk under your son and reap the benefits of your reign. Help us to love you more, God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.